So we've been in a series for quite some time titled Discovering God's Will Together. And so we started that adventure by taking a look at the personal spiritual disciplines, what God is calling us to do in our own personal spiritual life, engaging the scriptures, for example, spending time in prayer, setting aside some time for silence and for solitude, entering in to confession and self-examination and a number of others. Then over the last several weeks, we talked about unity and the importance and significance of coming together as a community and doing this discernment of what God wants for us to do together. And then specifically, the last few Sundays, we've been talking about what is this thing called discernment? Why is it so important and significant? And so this morning and next Sunday morning, we're going to sort of tie these pieces together and put an exclamation point on it and then move on to something a little bit different in our messages on Sunday morning. So this morning, we're talking about for the sake of others, and I'm inviting you to turn with me pretty much to the back of your Bible, to the second chapter of a book called Revelation, and there's a few verses there at the beginning of chapter two that I'd like to share with you, and we will come and visit some of those words together again. So this is a vision that the Apostle John saw. There were seven churches that he saw a vision about, and this is the first one. It's the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endeared hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nickelodeons, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chad. Chad was a shy, quiet little fellow. One day he came home from school and he told his mother that he'd like to make a valentine for everyone in the class. Her heart sank. She thought, I wish he wouldn't do that. Because she had watched the children as they walked home from school every day. And her Chad was always steps behind them. They laughed and hung on to each other and talked to each other, but Chad, Chad never seemed to be included. Nevertheless, she decided that she would go along with her son, and so she purchased the paper and the glue and the crayons. And for the next three weeks, three whole weeks, night after night, Chad painstakingly made 35 valentines. Valentine's Day finally dawned, and Chad was beside himself with excitement. 
He carefully stacked them up. He put them in a nice, neat bag, and he bolted out the door. His mom decided that she would bake his favorite cookies and serve them up warm with cold milk when he came home from school. She just knew he would be disappointed, and she hoped that they might ease the pain just a little bit. It hurt her just to think that he probably wouldn't get many Valentines. Maybe none at all. That afternoon, she had the cookies and the milk out on the table. And then she heard the children outside coming down the street. She looked out the window, and sure enough, there they were, laughing and having a good time together. And as always, Chad was taking up the rear all by himself. But he was walking a little faster than usual. She fully expected him to burst into tears as soon as he got inside. She noticed his arms were empty. And when the door finally opened, she choked back the tears. Mommy has warm cookies and cold milk for you, she said. But he hardly heard her words. He marched right on by. His face still aglow, but all he could say was, not a one. Not a one. Not a one. Her heart sank. And then he added, I didn't forget a one. Not a one. Not a single one. In our series on discovering God's will together, we have been underscoring some fundamental biblical principles. For example, God longs to have a personal relationship with us. Christ is the head of the church. His spirit graciously offers us his guidance and makes it possible for us to discern God's will together. Discernment is about seeking God's leading and God's timing and Seeking God's guidance is best done together. Discovering God's will requires a growing, transforming relationship with God. And God loved us while we were still sinners, but God loves us way too much to leave us that way. So the Spirit is continually at work in our lives. While our spiritual transformation is entirely the work and will of God, he requires that you and I are active in preparing the soil for the sowing of the seeds and for its nurture and for its ultimate harvest. And that requires on our part some intentional work. This work we have said is known as the spiritual disciplines. So we've talked about community and we've talked about silence and solitude and engaging the scripture and and prayer, and self-examination, and Sabbath, and a rule of life, and most recently, what it means to discern God's will together. And while engaging in the spiritual disciplines, we've said they are designed to be a part of our entire life, not something we just add or do on the side. They help us prepare the soil for God sowing the seeds, for God growing us into healthy plants, for God producing the fruit that focuses on our ability to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. 
This morning, I want to add another biblical principle to our growing list. We have defined spiritual transformation as the process of Christ being formed in us for his glory and for our enjoyment of him. And I'd like to add, for the sake of others. For the sake of others. You see, the spiritual disciplines are not just designed to help us fulfill the first part of that great commandment, loving God, but also the second part of that great commandment, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. So the spiritual disciplines remind us that it is not all about us. Spiritual transformation is not just Jesus and me on the side over here. Spiritual transformation not only impacts our relationship with God, but through our relationship with God, it impacts our relationship with our neighbor as well. God requires both. Both are the one great commandment. Ken Leach writes, Today, Christianity is widely seen as a religion of personal pronouns a purely individual faith. And this understanding is felt to be traditional. Although the truth is, it is very, very recent origin. The privatization of our faith has damaged the community of faith and any vital witness we might have had. Scripture says we are blessed to be a blessing. We are called to him for the sake of others. Or if I were to say it this morning with a little Kyperian flavor, I would say we are to recognize that every square inch of creation of this entire world belongs to God. You see, we matter deeply to God. But it's not about us. It's not about our wants. It's not about our needs. It's not about our rights. It's not about our opinions or our agenda. The Old Testament prophets continually reminded God's people that their worship of God was incompatible with injustice. That is, they were to love God and they were to love their neighbor. The worship of God, they said, must result in a concern for one's neighbor and one's community and, in fact, one's world. So coming to worship God while keeping one's eyes closed to the dehumanizing injustices around us or even worse, to actually participating and contributing to the world's injustices was denounced as wickedness. The New Testament regularly combines our love for God with our love for the neighbor. And it says that godliness includes looking after the victims of injustice, the marginal, the powerless, and the poor. It means we don't belittle or insult or demean or ridicule or gossip about or betray or steal from or in any way diminish our neighbor. You can't truly worship God and at the same time be treating your neighbor poorly. You can't love God fully without loving your neighbor thoroughly. 
Scripture calls us away from privatizing forms of spirituality and faith that suggest it's just about me and it's just about God. Or from a faith that enables us to ignore injustices and isolates us from the world and insulates us from the pain and the brokenness all around us. Scripture calls us to love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. And at the same time, to be an agent in dealing with our neighbors of healing, of forgiveness, and of grace without becoming a part of the world. When our spirituality becomes influenced by the world, it soon becomes a defender of the status quo and of the secular worldview. Ken Leach again says, when the church becomes captivated by the world, it becomes a reflector of the culture, and then it is no longer a critic or a transformer. So there needs to be some tension, if you will, between embracing the spiritual journey and the world in which you and I are called to live it out. If we undo that kind of tension, we'll be left with a spirituality that either isolates us from the world so we're in withdrawal, or it will give us a worldview that isolates us from a relationship with God. Without that tension... God either becomes our private possession, me and Jesus, or the reason we can ignore the world and pretend it's just going by, doesn't matter. God is the one who calls us out of this world. That is, we are the ecclesia, the scripture says. We are the called out ones. So God calls us out to bless us, but then he sends us right back into the world to be the blessing. Following the example and the leadership of Jesus, the church needs to be in the transforming business. The church is called to grow believers, to go and make disciples, to pray for and harvest the lost so that we might transform local communities, entire towns and cities, our culture, and even the world for Jesus. That mandate is illustrated for us in the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation. God gives to the apostle John a vision. And in that vision, John sees what it's like to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom in Revelation is known as the New Jerusalem. And at the same time, while we are living in a world of destructive values and power, which in Revelation is known as fallen Babylon. So as John sees this vision of the seven churches, he finds increasing clarity in what God wants from his followers and from his church. Each of these seven churches innately understands that they have been placed in a fallen world And as church, they are called by God himself to engage it. And a brief view of these churches finds that they are good and they are bad and they are ugly. 
There are two good churches where the followers of Jesus are living faithfully in an unfaithful world. And we know those are good churches because as we read through the description, Jesus has nothing against them. The first one is in Smyrna. This is a good, faithful church. It is willing to suffer and to pay the price of what it means to engage the world around them. Revelation chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11 read, I know your afflictions and your poverty, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. For the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even unto the point of death. I don't know about you, but if that's what results from being a faithful follower of Jesus and being a faithful church together, (laughs) it's kind of disconcerting. Tribulation, poverty, fear, suffering, prison, death. That's the reward for being a good and faithful church? Really? I mean, it doesn't seem to make being faithful all that enticing. There's a second church that's labeled good, and that would be the church at Philadelphia. They too are a good and faithful church that is walking through, if you will, the open door, as John says. They are the ones who are keeping God's word. They are the ones who have not denied the name of Jesus. John talks about them in Revelation 3, verses 8 and following. He says, I know you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word. You have kept my command to endure patiently. Here's another faithful church that is enduring intense persecution at the hands of fallen Babylon of the world. Seems to me it's about 100%. That is that every faithful follower... Paul once said, if you would be a follower of Jesus, you will suffer persecution. And here we find the church suffering as well. So I think, wow, if that's what's happening to good faithful churches, I wonder what in the world is happening to unfaithful churches. There's a couple of bad churches in this mix. Two of them. Laodicea. Revelation 3, 14 and following. It's a rich, prosperous, I'll dare say, arrogant church that needs nothing, wants nothing. Here is a church with attitude. They have an ego. They think really highly of themselves. And Jesus comes along and says, you're neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And then he gives the picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. (laughs) If you're standing at the door and knocking, you are outside. You are longing to get in. Jesus is not inside this church. He is on the outside of this church. So maybe we shouldn't even call it a church. Sardis is also on the list of bad churches. Its members have embraced the ways and the lifestyle of the world. This is at the beginning of chapter 3. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive. You look alive on the outside, but you are dead. 
You're an active church. You have lots of stuff going on. You are a busy people, but your busyness is deceptive. Your focus isn't on Jesus. The main thing isn't their main thing. They have placed a focus on themselves. And while lots of stuff is happening, nothing is really of significant going on. They're not making any, any difference. They're not transforming any lives. So we have two good churches and we have two bad churches. And then, I don't know, maybe ugly is in between. There are three churches there. Ephesus, the one we just read about, is an ugly church. Come back to that in just a moment. But there's a second ugly church in Pergamum. It seems they have mixed, on the one hand, faithful discipleship, and on the other hand, destructive accommodation. Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where Satan has his throne. You see, Pergamum was, was the center of emperor worship. And Jesus goes on to say, and yet you remain true to my name. You have not yet renounced your faith in me. So on the one hand, it sounds like this church is really, really faithful. And on the other hand, Jesus has a few things to say against them. He says, you're eating the foods that have been offered and sacrificed to idols. You're into idolatry. So it's Jesus and, and, and. And you're into sexual immorality within the fellowship Your walk doesn't match your talk. And then there's a church in Thyatira. Apparently that church is more committed to love and to service than they once were. Now that would be something positive. But at the same time, Jesus says they are also embracing the culture's immorality. He says, I know your deeds. I know your love and your faith. I know your service and your perseverance. But, but... You tolerate the teaching of sexual immorality and idolatry. Instead of transforming the world, you are allowing the world to transform you. Jesus says, I've been patient. But unless you repent, not only will you suffer, but your children will suffer and they will die. Church after church, Jesus invites his followers to become the presence of God, the light, if you will, the salt, if you will, in the world, in the fallen world. Church after church, Jesus is not only concerned about what they believe, what they think, but what they're doing, especially toward one another. As we continue to be shaped by the image of Christ, we'll find that we're increasingly at odds with the dehumanizing and manipulative structures of our sinful world. And yet, it appears that the world's values continue to slowly creep into the church. The world brings its temptations and its pressures and its enticements, and it badgers us to join, to indulge in the world's pleasures, to become one of them, to do it their way, to enjoy all the things that they're enjoying and if we don't they mock us they malign us and they persecute us 
And if we do, they simply call us hypocrites. You see, God not only calls us to live holy lives in this unholy world, but to live our lives in the midst of this unholy world as the witnesses to this unholy world. And it can't be done alone. We need each other. Our response, our obedience must be rooted in our life together. If we're not willing to live with each other, that is, if we're not willing to be mutually accountable to one another, we risk being subverted and destroyed one at a time and falling captive to the culture. We need each other. Our personal holiness needs to be nurtured in community of faith. Without a nurturing community, we'll never have the clarity of discernment that allows us to walk with Jesus Christ in the midst of this sinful world. Walking with other believers side by side, leading on and supporting one another is integral to our ability to be able to stay on the path with Jesus. So we need each other. We need each other more than we need to, than we need to be right more than we need to have it our way, more than we need to look good. If we can't learn to walk together, we'll find ourselves walking alone. And those who walk alone are easy prey for the evil one. God still loves the world as he did when he sent his son to die for it. And he reminds us that our mission is to love his world as he loves this world and to go and to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe everything that he has taught us. In other words, living for Jesus is not just a vertical thing between me and God. There's a major horizontal factor that goes with it, with following Jesus. Having been with God, having been made aware of everything that he has commanded us, we are to engage this world as his witnesses, as his ambassadors, as his mentors, as his disciples, even as Valentine Day card makers. As followers of Jesus, we have been called to reshape our world, everyone, every day. And the question is, how are we doing? When you go into a restaurant, can you distinguish the believers from the unbelievers? I know someone who waits on tables. She tells me that those who pray before they eat are the biggest complainers and the worst tippers. It should not be so. In the boardroom, in the shop, in the classroom, in our individual pods, in our neighborhoods, can you spot the believers? Maybe a better question, maybe a more important question is in the workplace, in the classroom, in the neighborhood. Does anybody know that you are a follower of Jesus? 
Is our Christianity a simple piety, just me and Jesus in the privacy of my own home and heart? Or does our faith engage us in the world? Are we letting our light shine? Are we being the salt that God has called us to be? Are we loving our neighbor? Are we representing Jesus well? We are passionate about saving the unborn, as well we should be. We are passionate about feeding the hungry, as well we should be. Are we just as passionate about advocating for the poor, combating racism, disrupting the sex trade, caring for those who are handicapped? We give generously to missions, as well we should. But when was the last time we personally shared the gospel with a neighbor, with a coworker, with somebody we met? When was the last time we invited somebody to come to church with us to experience the fellowship and to hear some good news? The church, and I'm using church with a big C, is being continually maligned today. The church, again, big C, is increasingly being ignored in our society and in our culture. But if we're able to step back for just a moment and look at it from where the world is looking at us, what significant difference is the church making in the world today? How is the church making a positive impact on our culture? Scripture doesn't advocate for more meetings where we gather to talk about how we can impact our world. It's not suggesting we go door to door and sharing the gospel or even have a well-organized campaign like he gets me. Now, let's be honest, there's nothing wrong with those and we ought to try everything we possibly can. But the bottom line is the scripture repeatedly calls us to live out our commitment to Jesus Christ every day in the everyday world. Our love, our love for, for Jesus Christ will wither on the vine if we're not reaching out to our neighbor to put our commitment into practice. So Jesus talks about all this in his word to the church at Ephesus, the passage we read. He gives this church a tremendous recommendation. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work. I know your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Kudos. Sounds like they have it all together, like they, they ought to be in the category of a good church. They're keeping the faith. But then Jesus also offers them a rather stern warning. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Ouch. Repent and do the works you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove the lampstand. I'll take the light away. Acts portrays the church in Ephesus as having such a powerful impact on the world that they were disrupting and impacting the entire economic order of their region. So many people were coming to faith that the idol-making business in town was going out of business. The brothels had no clients. The status quo was in upheaval and the whole providence was being reached with the word of God. That's Ephesus. 
So what was the problem? They had lost their first love. They had lost their love of God, their love of Jesus. And with their love for God and Jesus waning, their love for one another was waning as well. And their love for the world was diminished. They were just going through the motions. They had become a community of cold orthodoxy. They knew the right answers. They were doing the right things, but the passion, the love for Jesus was missing. When we don't love Jesus with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength, it impacts our love and our commitment and our work in this world. And ultimately, it results in the death of community. When was the last time you talked about how much you love Jesus to somebody? Not how much you love your church. How much you love Jesus. If we're unable to be loving and gracious to our fellow members, will they ever know how much we love them? You see, we're to be conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others within the body of Christ, so one another as we're gathered here this morning, but also to the world outside of the body of Christ. That is, we're here for the sake of others and for the sake of the world. Loving God with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, and our whole strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves is inseparable elements of our faith journey. If we're unable to be loving and gracious to those who are right next to us, if we're unwilling to walk the extra mile for our neighbor, if we're unwilling to forgive or unable to confess when we've messed up, then there's something amiss in our relationship with the Father and with Jesus. Our faith journey requires an increasingly faithful response to the one who shapes our path, whose grace redeems our detours, whose power liberates us from sin, and whose transforming presence walks with us every step of the road. At the end of every worship service, we are blessed, and then we are sent into the world. We have fed on the word, and we are literally being released into the wild. In the Book of Common Prayer, there is a prayer for mission. It's spoken regularly in some churches and traditions at the end of worship. And it goes like this, And now, Father, send us out to do the work that you have given us to do, to love and to serve as faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ our Lord. In our tradition, it is common to receive the benediction, a blessing, and then to hear, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. So after worship, after having been together and having been with God, we don't just get to go home. We get sent out into the world to be God's people, to be a blessing, to make a difference, to have an impact. There's another blessing in the common book of prayer that goes something like this. 
Now take us outside, Lord Jesus, outside of holiness, out to where soldiers curse and nations clash, out to the crossroads of this world. So shall this gathering, our time here together, continue to be justified. We ask for this in your own namesake. Amen. The Missio Dei, the mission of God, or literally the sending of God, is an idea that infuses every part of creation, every square inch. It is redeemed through our worship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is an integral part of who we are and who God calls us to be. So every engagement with word and worship is a repeat. It is a reenactment of being blessed and being sent. This Missio Dei is not primarily a theological construct that we're invited to have a discussion about or reflect on or even simply embrace. It is one we are called to enflesh into our daily rhythms of life. So we're invited into that biblical rhythm of blessed and sent. In worship, we are blessed with liturgy. Liturgy literally means the work of the people. And then we are sent into our vocation, into the mission in this world. The kingdom of God involves both our gathering together and our being scattered into this world. Steve Garber, in his book, Visions of Vocation, writes, in the daily rhythms for everyone, everywhere, we live our lives in the marketplaces of this world, in homes and in neighborhoods, in schools and on farms, in hospitals and businesses. And our vocations are bound up in the ordinary work that ordinary people do. We are not great shots across the bow of history. Rather, by simple grace, we are hints of hope. We all long to make a big splash in God's big vision and mission. The redemption of all things, the coming of his kingdom. But most days, God just invites us to embrace his blessing and his sending in the ordinary moments with little expectation of reward. That's the life of following Jesus. But... If little Chad can do it, so can we. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for calling us, for blessing us, for promising to be with us, to give us all that we need. And yes, Lord, thank you for sending us, sending us where you would have us go to make a difference, to be Jesus for them. So Father, thank you for the privilege of loving you above all and our neighbor as ourself. In Christ's name, amen.